Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I wanna invite you to the book of Hebrews. New Testament, Hebrews. For those of you who are guests, that would not be funny to you, but my people have been with me in Jeremiah now for the better part of a decade. And uh, most of the children on stage a few moments ago were not born when we began the series through <laughs> Jeremiah. Uh, but uh, we, uh, we're going to begin a new series this morning for the month of December called Glory, Amazed by the Christ of Christmas. And to do that, we're going to take some key passages from God's Word that help us focus in on His glory. Christmas is about awe and wonder and glory. We love to see the look on a child's face when they open a present or enjoy Christmas lights or feed an animal at Hollywood. In fact, a few days ago, my wife and I were with our four younger children, taking them to a high school basketball game to watch my second son play, and as we got out, my five-year-old Rhett immediately spotted there in the lobby of the high school a Christmas tree. We were 250 yards away from the front door, but the door is glass, and he immediately pointed out, look, a Christmas tree. We have two, maybe three in my home. I'm not really sure. I just sleep there, and it's always late when I get home and early when I leave, but we have trees all around us, but he spotted that tree. My three-year-old little girl, who is beautiful and wicked, <laughs> was pouting as we were walking toward the entrance of the lobby of the high school there to pay our entrance admission to go watch my son play basketball. And I noticed she had her face buried in my wife's shoulder and her bottom lip was out. It stays out quite often, and I said, Evie, what, what could be the matter tonight? We, we're, we're going in, we've packed snacks, we're going to see your brother play basketball, you won't watch any of the game, you'll run around in the bleachers, and you should be excited. And I said, look, Rhett's already spotted a beautiful Christmas tree. She said, no. She buried her face even more, and I looked at my wife, who speaks Evie, and I said, what's the matter with her? She said, she's refusing to look at the tree until we get close to it. She wants to see it up close. Now, I don't know in her little mind why she feels like looking at it from afar excludes her from looking at it up close. You can do both. I had to look at my wife from afar for a long time before I got to look at her up close. You can admire something from a distance, and then once you get there, you can admire it even more. In fact, I've often said to you, one of the reasons our online ministry has grown is I'm better looking from a distance. This is the way that it works. She said, I don't want to see it until I can see it up close. So we went in, and we took a moment, and she admired the glory of this high school lobby Christmas tree. It reminds me of the need for you and I to get up close to the glory of God. Glory in the Bible is not like an object. I can define the grace of God, the mercy of God, the power of God much more eloquently 
then I can define the glory of God because the glory of God in itself is more than just one idea, one doctrine. Paul Tripp defines the glory of God this way. The doctrine of God's glory encompasses the greatness, beauty, and perfection of all that he is. Now, typically, when we gather ourselves around the manger, we do rightly stress the humility of Christmas. We point out the contrast between the first and the second coming of Jesus. We await the second coming. The first time when he came, he came as a baby. The next time he comes, he'll come as a warrior king. The first time when he came, his mother and his father traveled to a village called Bethlehem because of a census that was demanded of those in the house of David. There was no room for him in the inn, and so she gave birth to him, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, as the King James says, and laid him in a manger, a trough, a piece of of wood fashioned, or perhaps even a hollowed out area in a cave where animals were fed. The next time though, when he comes, he'll be on a stallion. He'll ride as a risen king. He will leave a throne, not a manger. The first time he came, he came to peasants who had hardly anything. The next time he comes, he'll be Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The first time he came, he came by himself through the birth from his mother's womb. The next time he comes, he'll come with an army, an army of heaven and the host of those who've gone on before us in death. The first time he came, he came and the world knew him not and treated him as an enemy. The next time he comes, he'll come in victory and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in hell and on earth and in heaven that he is Lord. So come Easter, when we celebrate the fragrance and aroma of an empty tomb, we will celebrate it in victory and in power. We no doubt will either preach or will cross-reference the book of Romans where Paul says, that we are to live in the newness of life that was given to us through the power of the resurrection. So Easter Sunday is about power and victory, and we rightly contrast that with Christmas, humility, someone who stooped to the level of humanity. But even in the humility of the Christmas story, there are moments where the glory of heaven spills out into the scene, where you can't quite hold back all that he is. And so I do want you to recognize his humility. I want you to recognize his humble servanthood. I I want you to see how Christ came in meekness, not weakness, but meekness. But I also, over the next few weeks, want to remind you that just as a child stares into the glow of a Christmas tree, or just as a little one basks in the glory of that toy they had hoped for for so long, just as you get misty-eyed at the end of every Hallmark movie that has the same exact plot as the one you watch 
last night. Ask your pastor how many Hallmark movies I have watched in my life. Zero. But some of you, that's you, but just as you bask in that, I want you to be amazed by the Christ of Christmas. I want you to see his glory. I'm going to tell you something at the end of this sermon, but I'm going to tell you now and then I'll tell you again. When you appreciate and see the glory of our Savior, you'll live differently. You'll think differently. You'll make decisions differently. So here's what we're going to do. This morning, we're going deep in doctrine. Glory believed. Next week, we're going to see how the blessing of God's glory splashes over into our life. On the 19th, as we gather with musicians, we will talk about his glory belonging only to him. On Christmas Eve, we'll celebrate his glory being born. And then on December 26th, our new pastor of students, Trip Atkinson, will preach a message to you on the bestowing of God's glory in your life. But first, glory believed. The book of Hebrews is one of my favorites because it is probably a sermon. In fact, if you've ever read it in one setting, it takes quite a while. It's not a short New Testament letter. But if you've ever read it in one setting, you'll find it being unlocked to you more if you read it like a sermon. It has an amazing introduction. The body of it is cleanly divided. And the end of it, the benediction, ends where the beginning begins. The idea of Jesus receiving and being worthy of all the glory. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. This is one of the great mysteries of Bible study. In my last semester of my master's degree, I took a course called Advanced New Testament Exegesis in the book of Hebrews. Yeah, that's what I thought when I got the syllabus. The syllabus was longer than most of the textbooks that I had before. And the professor made us read a commentary that had 1,100 pages on the book of Hebrews, and I had to translate the book of Hebrews from Greek into English. I'm not a gifted scholar. I'm not, not a Greek professor, j- just a preacher. So it was a stretch for me. But one of the things I remember in reading that commentary is that there were over 26 theories presented as to who could have been the author of the book of Hebrews. When a commentator says there's 26 possibilities, let me summarize that. We don't know. We, we don't know. But we do know he was keenly aware of the Jewish life. We do know he was a Jew, and we do know he was more than likely writing to the persecuted church in Rome. Now, the persecuted church in Rome had a great deal of Jewish Christians. Before persecution of Christians began in Rome, there were many Jews living in the city, the most important city in the first century. And Judaism was fairly well accepted and tolerated. The Romans had a basic policy that said, you keep your culture, you keep your religion. As long as you render under Caesar what is Caesar's, we don't care how you worship. But the point that your worship threatens your obedience to the real king, according to them, Caesar, Caesar is Lord, would actually be demanded for citizens to say their allegiance to Caesar. The moment that that is threatened, you become a threat. 
So some of the earliest Christians who had seen Christ as the completion of their Judaism, who had been rejected by their family for believing that Jesus was Messiah, found themselves in a very difficult place. On one hand, those in their Jewish life who saw Jesus as a false Messiah would reject them. On the other hand, as Christianity began to be persecuted in Rome, they were rejected by the secular government they lived under. So they were getting persecution from both sides. And it is what most scholars believe, this moment of discouragement that the writer of Hebrews says don't hide. Because as a Jewish Christian, you could have easily just blended right back into Judaism and not spoke about your Christianity. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't do that. Don't bankrupt your faith. Don't move away from Christ. Keep going. But as is often the case, the most powerful motivation in the human life is not just motivational speaking. It is an object, a person, something bigger than yourselves. So the book of Hebrews is really all about the glory of Jesus. And I only want to preach to you one verse this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. I'll begin in verse 1 for context. Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Notice the capital S whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Notice the future and the past. He's the heir of all things. He'll inherit everything. But he was here before all things because it is through him he created the world. And here comes verse 3. He, talking about Jesus, the Christ of Christmas, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. One verse, four truths for you to remember, four ways in which I want you to be amazed by the Christ of Christmas this December. First, I want you to be amazed by the person he is. Not he was, not he could be, but the person he is. I recognize it's grammatically incorrect to end a sentence with is, but I remind those of you who are grammatical correction people, that's not a sentence, it's a point. The person he is. Look what the Bible says in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. That word radiance is only used here in the New Testament. There's so many ways in which we could try to unpack it by looking at extra biblical literature. Commentators have tried in a lot of different ways. At the the source of it, it's the idea of brilliant light, splendor, and intense brightness. The luminous manifestation of God's person. We believe the Bible clearly teaches there is one God. He has revealed himself in three persons. All persons of the Godhead are fully God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, we recognize 
that they operate often in different roles, but in their being, they're one and the same. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God who has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. This was, of course, extremely important to the New Testament church to found and to hold on to. It is why it is incredibly important to recognize that if you deny the full deity of Jesus, the bones of Christianity are no longer able to support the body of the church. The foundation is of sand. In fact, two very prominent religions in our world today that have many things in common with Christianity are in fact not Christian. Our neighbors in the Jehovah's Witness Church and our neighbors in the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. And the reason that they are not Christian biblically is because of their denial of the full deity of Christ the pre-existent Son of God who has always existed and will always exist as the radiance of the glory of God. Now, what does this mean, this radiance of the glory of God? It's so hard to distinguish God from his glory and God's glory from who he is, and there's a reason for that. Have you ever tried to stare at the sun high noon? Think about trying to stare into the brilliance of a bright light. You would look at that image right there and you would immediately say, that photographer took a picture of the sun. That is correct. But can you outline the sun? You cannot. Can you see the circular shape of the sun? You cannot. You cannot tell where the brilliance ends and the ball of gas that is the sun starts. A star. You can't tell it. Now, there are certain times where the brilliance of the light of the sun are dampened by atmospheric conditions, and you can clearly see the orange ball in the sky that God has placed and upholds. But when you look at it in all of its brilliance, you don't know where the sun ends and the light of the sun begins. This is the idea, that the Son of God is the radiance of the glory of God. And interestingly, when he says that, he points out what he means. His glory is important for us to remember. If you have your Bible open, I don't normally ask you to do this, but if you were to flip to the end of the book of Hebrews, hold your finger in chapter one, but if you were to flip to the end of the book of Hebrews, just before the final greeting there, you'll find the benediction. In the benediction of the end of the book of Hebrews, notice what the writer says. Verse 20 of the 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Whether you have an app you've scrolled to or you're in a printed copy as I prefer. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Now watch this. Through Jesus Christ, to him be the what? Glory. Help me out a little bit, church. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, you can go back to chapter 1. He begins and he ends with the glory of Jesus. Why does that matter? Why does his fame, his brilliance, his splendor, and his connection to God the Father matter in our lives? I'll tell you why. Let me tell you how this will affect your life tomorrow. It won't affect your life tomorrow if you leave this on the level of cognitive knowledge. If you walk out and say, the pastor did a theological treatment of the deity of Christ in our service today, and I enjoyed it. 
good, good for you. But it will matter when you recognize that that glory is still to be fully revealed in our lives. This is why Paul said this in Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. My daughter was on stage a few moments ago, and because she had to be here early, she rode with me. She got to enjoy my Sunday morning playlist. I get my worship on as I drive from the great metropolis of Ennery up here on Sunday mornings. And the sun was coming up. We saw birds flying in the air. We were listening to some good worship music. I said, Lily, this is my favorite day of the week. Can you believe that he made all this for us and we get to go with his people and I get to preach him to the most precious congregation I've ever known and we haven't even scratched the surface of what heaven's going to be like. You and I have to deal with a real world that has real heartache and real sorrow and real struggles. You struggle with real sin. You make real mistakes. So does your pastor. But my reality must be cloaked in the glory of God. We were created for his glory. We were created by his glory, and we were created to one day drink deep of his glory in words and images that the biblical writers struggled to even articulate. It matters that you recognize his glory, but his glory comes from the character of his identity. Look at the next phrase. I only have one verse to deal with, so we can take it apart. Look what he says in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That word in the original language uh, comes from a Greek word that we get our word caricature. Ever been at the beach and paid some guy $20 to do a little quick painting of you? It's not quite accurate, especially if he gives you a six-pack and only gives you one chin. We appreciate them, but it's not quite accurate. We know what a caricature is. In the first century, the coins of Rome had the faces of Caesar on them. If you have a quarter in your pocket, you have an imprint of a president that we celebrate. When we think about dollars and money, often it is leaders, people of fame. We do this on stamps. We do this on paintings and murals. This is the word. But, but the writer says he's the exact imprint. This is why it's so important to recognize what Jesus was saying when the disciples were asking about his access to the Father. You know, these were Jewish boys. They had been raised to believe the Lord your God is one. You shall have no other gods before you. They had been taught about Jehovah, Elohim, and all the other names that captured God the Father. They knew Moses walked with him. They knew Ezekiel and Jeremiah preached about him. They knew Abraham saw him in all of his splendor at one point. They knew that Moses experienced the burning bush, and they wanted to see the Father. And so this discussion happens and Jesus, in talking about seeing the Father and in talking about a coin, said this in Matthew 22, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarii and Jesus said, whose likeness and inscription 
is this? And they showed it to him, and what happened? He said, then render unto Caesar what is Caesar. But later in the book of John, when asked about the Father, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, the interesting thing about that is the idea of him being the exact imprint of God. Uh, I heard a uh, podcast this week where this psychic is supposedly now able to channel Jesus, and for $1,100, she will go to the celebrities and channel the voice of Jesus. Friend, I spoke to him this morning. I talked to him this morning, and, and he lives in me. He lives in me, a wicked sinner made right by God. I, I don't have to go through anyone to access Jesus, but Jesus. And when I speak to Jesus, I speak to the Father. For the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. John would say, Jesus said, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So be amazed by the person he is. But secondly, be amazed by the power he displays. Look at the third phrase in this power-packed verse. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe, I love this, by the word of his power. We understand the power of his word, right? If someone does something you tell them to do, two things happen. You tell them to do it, and then they do it. If I tell my son to get out of bed and he gets up, he obeys me. I did not get him up with my words. My words gave him the message, and the message was connected to a respect, perhaps a fear of me, and he got out of bed. If you have an animal that you have trained, a dog that you have worked with, and you say, sit, stay, and that dog looks at you and sits down and does not move until you release that dog, that dog obeyed your command. But your command does not control the hindquarters of that dog. No, no, no. Your command was processed by that dog's ears and that dog's brain and your work with that dog to manipulate his or her behavior so that the dog connects your command with his activity. So I have words that can cause people to do things, but my words don't cause things. God's different. When God speaks, no one has to listen for it to happen. All of creation listens. Think about the creation account in Genesis 1. We see it in verses 3 and in verses 6 and in verses 9. And God said, and God said. Later in verse 9, again we see it. And God said. Now, when you drop that in the understanding of who Jesus is, this is why Paul says in the book of Colossians these words. He is the image of the invisible God, the same idea. The firstborn of all creation, that does not mean Jesus was born like you and I. He's talking about firstborn in status and in power. He was the firstborn out of a grave who will live forever. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. But then watch how Paul ends in verse 17 of Colossians chapter 1. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There is no created being who could fit that description. And he does so by the word of his power. 
Now, we need to remember that when we look at a manger, that those little hands fought death and won. That those little feet would grow up to a man who would march up Calvary and then walk out of a grave. That, that inside of the beautiful gift of God's incarnate son was the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may feel powerless, something going on in your life. In fact, there are many situations you have little to no control over. It is in those situations that you need not spend time being consumed with trying to get power. Just go be with the one who has all the power. And as you are with him, your confidence in him will give you clarity as to know what you are to do because all the power and all the glory is in him. I want to show you my favorite, though. It's the purity he offers. This Christmas, be amazed, thirdly, by the purity he offers. Look at the next clause in this verse. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So these are all active. This is what he is, who he is, what he does. But then watch this. After, so now we're going back. Something happened because what's about to be said happens after what has just happened. After making purification by his power. After making purification for sins. After making purification for sins. Not just payment, purification. How does this happen? Well, the writer of Hebrews, and we're not preaching through the book of Hebrews, we will one day, but the writer of Hebrews fleshes out an entire theology with Judaism in the background of the great high priest making purifications for the sins of the people. And, and, he, and he ultimately argues in chapter 2, and he unpacks it later. Since therefore the children, talking about you and I, share in flesh and blood, we're human. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that's Christmas, when he dwelt flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. This is what we fear. This is what humanity dreads and tries to avoid, is death. This is the great unknown for those who do not no, ask someone on the street what happens when you die. You will get a thousand different answers. It is a freeing thing to live your living life knowing your dying life is already taken care of. He took care of that by coming in flesh and blood. He provided purification for our sins. And, of course, we see Calvary all through Christmas. They laid him in a manger. They'll lay him on a cross. He came in meekness. He died in weakness, having been broken by the sins of the world. The Son of God bore our sin. This is the great gospel of Christmas. You will watch our world celebrate a Christ of Christmas, but they're scared to take him to a cross. Because if you take him to a cross, you have to acknowledge the wrath and the holiness of God on sin. And when you acknowledge the wrath and holiness of God against sin, you acknowledge that there is a God who is the moral superior to all of creation. And what he says is right is right, and what he says is wrong is wrong. And therefore, as our 
creator, it is our role, it is our created purpose to submit to his lordship. You do that by recognizing his death on a cross for our sins. This is why the great hymn writer years and years ago wrote that song about the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. I grew up singing this whole song. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Pure, being made holy, right, and pure. Don't ever miss that Christmas filled the cross. And the cross is all we have to claim our salvation. It's it. I mean, I mean, think about how often we hear the word I when people are asked the question, if you die and, and you go to heaven, why will you be there? Often people will say, well, I, I was a good person or I, I attended church or, or I even believed and dotted the right I's and crossed the T's and I, I tried to be better and I, I tried to make amends or pay penance for my failures. I was listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg recently. I give him credit for this great illustration. He was talking about this issue and he said, any person in heaven that begins the sentence with I is off base. Ultimately, when we get there that day and somebody says, how did you get there? The sentence must not start with I. It must start with he. He. He did it. Think about the thief on the cross. He gets to the gates of heaven as Alistair Begg so beautifully preached. And somebody said, well, excuse me, sir, can I ask you a few questions? Uh, well, what church did you belong to? Don't know. Never been to church. Uh, okay, well, did you, did you have a copy of the, of the Bible? No, never read it. Well, were you, were, you, were you baptized? No, no, never been baptized. Okay, several, so well, why are you here? The thief only has one answer. Because the man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross told me I could come. He saved me. He is the one who makes purification for sin. Don't gut the gospel of you being a better person or nicer, trying to give a little money away to make yourself feel better. You and I are wretched sinners in need of the wrath of God, and yet he rescued us by his son. He was sent to live? Yes. Was he sent to love? Yes, but don't make any bones about it. Every time you see a manger this month, you look at it and you say to yourself, that baby was sent to die for me. The man on the middle cross told me I could come. He is the purification for sins. And finally, be amazed by the position he holds. Look how the verse ends. It ends where I'll end. My Christmas gift to you is this month of 30-minute sermons. <laughs> Let's get to the end of the month to see if I come through with that. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, I love this, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. One of the things we do in our 
chit-chatting is, are you done? You, you got your Christmas ready? There's two people in this room today. There's some of you that none of us really like. You go, oh, yeah, finished up in uh, October. Ready to go. Won the decoration award in the neighborhood. All the gifts are wrapped alphabetically. In fact, I have different wrapping paper for each child, nephew, niece, aunt, and uncle. We're good. In fact, I've been baking mostly. Nobody likes you. I love you in Christ. Nobody likes you. We don't, the rest of us don't have it together. Praise God for Amazon Prime. I wrap in cardboard. I just send it to you. I go on that little gift receipt. Love you, Deej. Just send it to you. I don't have to deliver it. I ain't got to wrap it. I ain't got to be there to see you not like it. Are you done? And at some point, some of us, it might be the 23rd, we finish. And we exhale. And hopefully, for a few days there, between Christmas and New Year's, we get a few days off. And we get to relax before we start the new year. There is something to be said of being finished, of being done. If you've ever walked across the stage receiving a diploma you worked so hard to earn, if you've ever finished up paying off a vehicle, making extra payments, tearing away at that principle, hammer that principle, read a little bit about interest. You'll learn about how good it is to hammer away at that principle. Perhaps some of you, I don't know this yet, but some of you have paid off a home. That must be an accomplishment. Or maybe your baby child finally becomes gainfully employed. They're off parole, and you believe they've got it between the ditches, and you are done. There is something to be said about finishing. Now, we often preach Christ in the active. He is working today. I just proved to you scripturally. He upholds all things. He maintains the universe. If Christ stopped being Christ, then everything around you would fall out of orbit, that we would cease to exist. So, yes, there is an active work about our God. Our God is a working God. He moves. He makes. He meets needs. But some things he's already finished. He's done. He's completed. The writer switches the tense, and he says, after making purification of sins, he sat down. That's when you finish, right? When can you take a break? When you're done. When can you get off your feet? When your shift's over. When can you finally exhale? When you can sit down. He sat down, never to stand to die again, never to come be born again, never ever to empty a tomb as a broken, lifeless cadaver. No, he sat down. I have Finished it, he said. And where did he sit? Not just any old chair in heaven, at the right hand of the Father. I shook a few hundred of your hands this morning. I'll shake a few hundred more after the service. When I shake your hand, I extend my right hand. Do you know why? Because you extend your right hand. If your hand is injured or you're not able to, often you can extend the left hand, and people are kind. Most of the time that ends up being awkward or a fist bump. There was about a year and a half there where we were all scared to shake hands. People said, I don't think we'll ever shake hands again. Bless God, I'm shaking hands and I'm hugging because my Savior's made purification for my sins. If he wants to take me today with the old Omicron, he can take me today. I'm going to live my life. Why do we extend our right hand? I'll tell you why. The vast majority of men are right-handed. Now, some of us of more superior nature are left-handed. The vast majority of men are right-handed. You know what a soldier holds in his right hand? A sword. You know when a soldier is ready to make peace? When he lays his sword down. 
So the right hand extended is from antiquity. It is saying there's no sword in my hand. There's no weapon. I love you. I'm ready to shake hands with you. So the right hand is the hand of authority. This is true in the Bible. The right hand of God is the hand of judgment and power and authority. So a king placed the one most powerful in his kingdom at his right hand. Where's Jesus? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Celebrate him in a manger. Don't leave him there. The mangers, like the tomb and the cross, they're empty. The throne is filled. When you see the glory of God, you'll live differently. You'll think differently. This Christmas will be different.